Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. Hey, and this is Anthony. And this is episode 259, our friends' favorite games, The Great Zimbabwe. We'd like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, Anthony, it looks like we have a new feature for this week. Yeah, this is a cool one. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and obviously it takes some planning to get it all organized and rolled out, but we're doing it. It's happening. They're coming now, once a month or so. Um, we're gonna <laughs> we're bringing on friends from every corner of the hobby. So, like, I know people have interviews where they have guests come on and talk about their new game, or they do a feature with them or whatever, and... Honestly, the best time that I've had interviewing anybody on any podcast, this one or Every Night is Game Night, is when somebody comes on and they just start going off about their favorite game. And they just get passionate. They're excited. It's interesting, especially if I've played it before and know what they're talking about. So, yeah, you know, we figured why not have a whole feature of that where we're going to bring on Patreon backers like Michael today. Um, we're going to have on other podcasters, we're going to have designers and publishers, and they're going to tell us all about their favorite game, why it's their favorite game, what mechanics they like, how that influences their gaming. So we have a bunch of these lined up, so you should expect one every month or so at least. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. This is our first one, so let us know what you think, but it's I'm excited for it. Join the conversation, which we would always love for you to do. Please check us out on patreon.com slash bga we really do want to make this podcast about you and what you love and the board games that you want to get to the table so please reach out to us participate all of the social media um especially youtube a lot of people have youtube accounts but don't know that we actually have a channel on youtube so you can listen to the episodes there 
Or you can also catch some videos that Anthony has done previously. Not to mention, the more we get board gaming out there, we can. And of course, you know, if you're not a social media guru like Anthony, please use the old-fashioned tell a friend about the podcast. You know, getting the word out to board gaming helps a lot and gets new games onto the podcast. All right, Anthony, so that's what's going on with our feature review. Can't wait to get to the great Zimbabwe. But there's still a lot of other stuff that is going on with BGA. And we want to let people know that we do have some upcoming events. So we'll be at Dreamation 2020 in Morristown, New Jersey. So if you happen to be in the area, you definitely want to check out this convention. It's a fun convention and a lot of game teaching goes on. So the Envoy program that teaches the games is really a great way to learn new games at the table and, uh, you know, meet some vendors that you may not normally meet if you happen to be in the tri-state area. In addition to that, and we have more details coming, but we wanted to give you a heads up. On May 9th, 2020, we'll be doing another big charity board game day in Fanwood, New Jersey. So again, if you happen to be in the tri-state area, New Jersey, New York, actually wherever you are, we would love to see you at our big board game charity day. Uh, it's just a great way to give back to the industry, give back to people who are in need, and we'll be giving you more details about that as things come up. Obviously, we have other conventions coming up like Origins, and hopefully we'll get a chance to stop by your convention. All right, Anthony, that's everything that's going on with BGA. Let's get on to our listeners. What's our question of the week? All right, question of the week this week. What is your favorite feeling you get from a game? Whoa. So for me, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> what do we mean by that? Hello, hello, board game. I have missed you so very much. <laughs> okay, before we go completely off the rails. So for me, what I'm talking about here is basically when you're playing a game, what's the thing that makes you happiest right like oh, why do you love oh, board games okay so, that makes a lot more sense now yeah well you know <laughs> it, it can go either way you interpret it however you want okay so for me it's solving like a really tough puzzle right if i have it, one of my favorite things in games and i've said this several times is give me a very limited number of resources and lots of restrictions and tell me to try to figure out how to do something and that's what i like like I have these few things. I have all these other players trying to mess with me. How do I get from point A to point B while zigging and zagging through all this other crap? And that, that when, when I can successfully do that, it's one of my favorite feelings in board games, hands down. Um, some people, it's the perfect die roll or the stand-up shouting moment where you roll the perfect exact amount you need to beat a particular boss. Uh, some people really like the cascade of effects from a tableau they've built out. And some people just like miniatures everywhere, right? Just seeing all that plastic makes them happy. So I asked everybody what their favorites were. and got some pretty good responses. Uh, C.T. Henry said, Cleverly planning to set myself up for a power move that will either combo into a ton of points or get me a ton of actions. You feel like you're Superman. And I'm 100% on board with that. David says, Best feeling is setting a game up and settling down to play. Just that moment and feeling when everything is ready and everyone has equal amount of chance to come out as the winner at the end. Looking forward to journey to get there. Uh, Chris mentions co-op games where you think everything is lost and then by brainstorming and collaboration and testing, you finally come up with one possibility that just might work. And then it does. Uh, Fed says, 
He likes taking huge risks, knowing you might lose the game if it doesn't pay off, but in the end, pulling through to win. Uh, side note, even if I don't win, it's still a good feeling, and usually at this point I can tell if I like the game, which is a really cool point, I think, is even if you lose a game, even if it's a bad play, even if everything falls apart, if you have one of these moments, it's often a good sign that the game is going to stick with you and you're going to have fun with it. So lots and lots of answers on here. I'm not going to read through every single one of them because we have like 30. So thank you for everybody who hopped on Facebook and replied to the question. Um, it was a very fun one. A lot of good responses in there. But for me personally, like I said, it's that puzzle element. And our buddy Dave actually mentioned another, like a second one that's kind of growing on me a little bit. And he said, it's got to be when opponents make faces or complain about my move because I just made a move that thwarted them or I added a great advantage to my position in the game state. And I think that like that level of confrontation used to frustrate me a little bit. But as I've grown like more comfortable in the game group I'm in, it's kind of fun <laughs> just to throw something down and know that someone's going to like lose their, just blow their top completely because oh, that's what you were going to do? Well, block, 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 and then your backup plan, also blocked. Sorry. <laughs> um, I play a lot of splatter games, if you can't tell. I see so, that. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun, and it's uh, it's almost like a puzzle by itself, just trying to get the most out of what I can do and block everybody else at the same time. Yeah, for me, there's obviously two things. I've talked about these before. First is building a tableau. If the game comes to an end, win or lose, and I built up a really crazy or wonderful card tableau of all special powers and abilities and they chain together, I usually walk away from the game going, cool, look, this this did this when I did this and it did this. I mean, I don't know. I can't control all elements of the game state, so that's always really fun. As far as like an emotional moment when I do something in a game and get something back out of it, it really is that you know, very much that situation where you have to make a decision early on and there's like, there's always that pivotal moment, typically in a Euro game, not always, but typically in a Euro game where you know it's a risky endeavor and you know that you'll have no idea if that'll pay off for you or bankrupt you until probably an hour from then. So you're like, all right, I'm going to do this, even though I know I'm going to regret it. I usually say exactly that because I know I'm going to regret it. And then an hour <laughs> later and I'm like, Oh, I'm still in the game. Like that did not kill me. <laughs> like, thanks past Chris for not, you know, just throwing me into the gutter there. So yeah, <laughs> I, it's a, it's certainly a thing. So yeah. So past Chris and future Chris, you know, they, hopefully they play hand in hand, but not always, not so much, but uh, yeah, that, that definitely that, surprise moment that you kind of look back at and well yeah, you know what that wasn't such a crazy move that did work out i, I did have no idea all right cool cool that was great <laughs> all right so that's everything for our listeners please again jump on our social media especially facebook and twitter and let us know what you would love to get to the table and what great moments you've had all right, Anthony, so let's get on to the episode, and let's talk about our acquisition disorders. All right. I stole one from you this week. Uh, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. You didn't put it on the spreadsheet, so it's all mine. Well, um, you got there first, so I'll give I, it to you. I did, and there's really nothing to say about it except that it exists, so <laughs> it's kind of short. But <laughs> uh, somebody grabbed a 
screenshot or photo of The Castles of Tuscany, which is a new Stefan Feld game, and presumably a sequel to The Castles of Burgundy, because it's in the same style and font. It's from Alea. All the all the cards are aligned, all the stars are there to tell us that this is a sequel in the same vein as Brass Birmingham or Marco Polo 2 or King of New York, where it's going to... And again, this is all speculation because they've literally released nothing about this game. But my guess is that it's going to be taking the basic mechanics of Castles of Burgundy and doing something new and interesting with it. So Castles of Mad King Ludwig to suburbia, that kind of thing. Hopefully it's good. <laughs> so oftentimes when designers do that, they overcomplicate their own game. And Castles of Burgundy is among the most streamlined and accessible of Stefan Feld's games. It's like the one game I can get people who don't like Feld to play. Um, mm -hmm. And so he doesn't, hopefully doesn't go overboard with it, but we don't really know anything about it yet. So I'm going to buy it. It's a Feld. I'm already <laughs> in, but that's all I know. <laughs> I, I'm going to take a leap here. I guess just as I mentioned a couple minutes earlier, the thing I love about board games is making a wild decision. Hopefully it, yeah. <laughs> it pays off <laughs> later on. You mentioned there is no information out there. There's just this one photo of the game box. And when I saw the game box, my thought initially went to, and again, I have no background information to prove this is true or not, because basically the image is of the box. It's an Aaliyah box. Castles of Tuscany, Stefan Feld. And in the middle is this lion door knocker kind of situation. But on the outside, around in a circle, there's all these different symbols. This could clearly just mean an artist's depiction of the different actions. But I'm going to go on a limb here and say Rondell. Ooh. I what didn't do you think? think of that. I did not think of that at all. I, ooh, so Trajan plus Castles of Burgundy. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean... Uh, my friends I mean, would it, hate it, but I would love it. <laughs> I mean, he's done rondels before, and if the piece of artwork could be believed, you know, it does seem like normal kind of rondel actions. There's a movement action, there's a build action, and I, I just could see that as a possibility here, especially if he wants to do something different with the Castles of Burgundy. A rondel could meet that, you know, bill, so to speak. Yeah, 100%. There's a whole thread on BGG, too, where they're like speculating. They're like, all right, well, we have this variant where we hide the dice from each other because that speeds up the game a little bit. <laughs> and someone else is like, ooh, we have a variant where we like printed out cards of the different dice values and then we shuffle it up so that it's not completely random. I'm like, I don't think it's going to be any of that, but it's kind of fun to read people speculating based on their own sure. brews of the game. <laughs> so, uh, man, I love Castles of Burgundy. Hopefully it's good. All right, well, check back with us and find out if I <laughs> if yeah, <right? laughs> past Chris was tremendously wrong or tremendous, totally prescient. All right, Anthony, so let me tell you about a game that I've had my eye on, and it actually does have all the details. This is Genotype, a Mendelian genetics game, a worker placement and dice drafting game built on Gregor Mendel work with genetics and pea plants. I know that sounds exciting, but it actually is pretty exciting and looks really exciting. It's currently on Kickstarter. And if you're interested in this after my review wraps up, it'll be available for final funding on Thursday, February 27th. So when you hear this episode, you will have a good amount of time to check this one out. 
So what we're looking at here is the famous Mendel squares where basically the idea of recessive and dominant genes came into play. So right off the bat, you have a situation where you could possibly learn something, so to speak. So uh, not a bad thing as far as board gaming is concerned. Board gaming is often typically very good about helping people learn certain things and making things fun. So yeah, why not? So what we're looking at here, and this game comes from Genius Games, and it's it, it's something different. It just looks different. It just acts different. They've had a lot of other games. They're typically scientific in nature. This seems to be the most kind of game game and not just so much straight spreadsheet about science. So basically what we're looking at this game as the title, so to speak, mentions is that you are going to be able to select dice and the dice are rolled initially and they're placed on the board and they will represent the different genes in the game. Some are recessive, some are dominant and they have the different coding in the game. And you're gonna pick these dice and what you're gonna do is utilize these dice to be able to, I guess, crossbreed and to create these different pea plants. Now, I'll be honest, one of the things that really grasped me about this game is it does seem like this kind of old fashioned scientific journal where they're putting together or they're doing all the mathematical computations here. And it also has that kind of classic kind of scientific style where it's all about you know, these plants, these wonderful illustrations, which you don't see as much anymore. So you're going to be able to select these dice. You're going to what seems like a kind of contract completion situation. Like you need certain dice in order to be able to produce a certain plant. And then you'll be able to open up new plots of land so you can produce more plants. So you can crossbreed those plants in order to make other plants. So again, a beautiful production here, dice selection, kind of worker placement, there's some special abilities to open up here in the game. And there's a number of different stretch goals this game that you might want to check out. So they have the generic version, which is, again, seems like a solid version, $39. MSRP, according to them, will be $50. And then they have a collector's edition with some upgrade components, some wood tiles, some glass markers, and some custom coins. So that's going to be $55 with an MSRP of $70. There's going to be some stretch goals here. Doesn't seem like anything too crazy. There's a solo element in the game if you'd like to play this all by your lonesome little self. And again, seems like a fantastic game from a very good company that knows science. And it seems like they've actually produced a really fun board game here. So 45 minutes to 90 minutes long, one to five players. Great little game. Definitely should check it out. Genotype. A Mendelian genetics game, and it will wrap up on Thursday, February twenty seventh, two thousand twenty. Looks super interesting. I don't know. Like, I I just like the idea that Genius is moving beyond just like these are the parts of the cell, and these are the parts of the body, and these are the parts of a peptide. And like, <laughs> that's true. I, nobody's really made a good genetics game yet, in yeah. my opinion. They're all like, roll some dice. What happened? Oh, you failed. <laughs> I mean, that's what genetics is, right? You it roll is. some dice yeah. and see what happens. So it's kind of the, how do you make a good game about genetics? It's just not random dice rolls. And this seems to seems to have an idea about it. So I'm interested. Yeah, I just like the old-fashioned throwback to science when the artistry was so much part of it. You know, it was informative. It was educational. And you could see it was inspiring to the scientists back in the day. So... Uh, I, I really like just like the look of this game, and I think it might be a, a fun uh, thing to get to the table. 
All right, so that's everything that we want to hit the table. Let's talk about the games that did hit the table. And we'll let you know if those games are a buy and you should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play and you should sit down and play them, those games are a dodge and you should avoid them all costs. Or if those games are a dreaded burn, they should not reproduce or crossbreed in any way. And you should get rid of those. All right, Anthony. So what games hit the table this week? All right. So I have a review and then a response. So, oh, man. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, you reviewed a game last week, and, and I had a chance to play it this last week. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the review, though. <laughs> Just a little uh, sizzle there for you guys. Um, so the review, the new game that I played in the last couple of weeks is The Fox in the Forest Duet. This is a trick-taking game for two players. And it's based on The Fox in the Forest, which was a competitive two-player trick-taking game that I actually rather liked. But it was it was probably like a soft play for me. It was enjoyable. It was interesting. I played it a couple times with friends, and I liked it um, as much as I can like a trick-taking game. So it was fine. But The Fox in the Forest duet takes that same mechanic and makes it cooperative. And you're probably wondering, how do you make a trick-taking game cooperative? Well, I, I talked about one recently uh, that's coming from Cosmos soon, and I'm really excited about that one. I think that's really going to kill it. But this one in particular, I think, is a lot of fun because it's, again, just two players. It's very, like, couples-friendly, children-friendly. The rules are very simple. There's only, I think, 10 different suits in the game, um, or numbers in the game, only the three suits. And the idea is you have a tiny little board with these little icons you're trying to remove and a path that you move along. As you move along the path, you will. when you stop, you can remove one of the tokens. The goal is to remove all the tokens within four rounds. You can also accidentally move off the edge of the board if you move too far in one direction or the other. So how it ends up working is each player will play a card into the suit or into the trick, and the total number of stars on those cards will determine how far you're going to move, and then the winner will move in their own direction. So you can look at the board and see, okay, we're three away from the edge on my side. I need to make sure I lose this trick because if we play a bunch of stars and we move too far in my direction and I win the trick, then we're going to fall off the edge of the forest. It's going to use up one of our clearing tokens and we're going to lose the game faster. So there's, it's almost like the mind a little bit in that you have to kind of think with each other without communicating because you can't tell each other these things you can't share your hand you can't tell each other what you're doing and because it's only two players you don't have like the hanabi thing where people just kind of like wink at each other really hard <laughs> i mean like on the left choose a card on the left there's no real way to do that uh there are some special abilities on the cards themselves so if you play a card it might allow you to swap a card or change the trump suit or adjust you know, the direction in which it's going to move after someone wins. But at the end of the day, it's like, how close of a connection do you two have that you're thinking about the same things? And can you move the things in the right direction? It's really clever. It's a lot of fun. It plays really fast, like 20 minutes or so. And I really enjoyed it. I actually did buy this one. I uh, did not buy the original, but I did buy this one. And I'm honestly looking forward to playing it with my wife, with my son, with my daughter, because I think all of us are going to enjoy it together. And I've played this with, you know, gamer friends as well. So Fox in the Forest duet for me, that's a buy. Um, the Fox in the Forest, the original game it's based on, is a play. It's fun. It's a nice two-player option. But if you ask me, you know, I need a two-player quick card game that's 20 minutes, I'm like, this one for sure. The other one, it's fine if you want something competitive, but this one is it's just, it's better. It's a better game. So <laughs> definitely pick it up. 
All right, and then moving on to the other thing, real quick, because I don't want to, but you last week reviewed Terraforming Mars Turmoil, right? I did. And you hated it. I did. <laughs> and I, So I played this uh, three days ago, or two days ago, I'm sorry, and mm -hmm. we played it with five players, all of whom love Terraforming Mars, so it was a, a friendly uh -huh. crowd, but we we played through, and I don't know, I thought it was a lot of fun. Okay. The events give you enough time to prepare for them. Except in a couple cases, most of the time you could adjust or prepare for it or make sure your influence was high enough to offset the negative effects. I will say that at the end of the game, we did look at the bottom of the deck and some of the worst events were down at the bottom of the deck. So we did have a couple of positive ones, but we played like nine generations. So we saw a nice mishmash of events and mm -hmm. it was fun. It just gave something else to look at. Um, we removed colonies from the game and kept in everything else and then that and it's not a buy for me it's not like this is the best expansion ever it kind of fits in the same bucket as you know colonies or venus where i'm like this is fun it's an interesting mechanic you don't need it uh but if you add it in it should it should be good it did add like 45 minutes to the game though so i can't argue with you on that global events is a standard expansion mechanic i mean there's so many games that have like hey we threw go you know global events in good and bad and you're like all right <laughs> like if you <laughs> if you play the game so much and you want to have a situation where you flip a card and like a good thing or a bad thing happens just to kind of mix things up a little bit even though it can be completely random sure well, why not the 45 minute thing i think that's where it went you know a step way too far for me as you mentioned there are some several bad cards and you could have a bad game where things are just draining you but the extra time and the loss of a terraforming part point each and every generation really just kind of dragged it for me so but uh i'm glad you enjoyed it I, yeah, it's, it's very fun. polarizing though like looking at bgg some people really hate it so you're not alone at all like this is no and i'm not alone at all either it's you either love it or you hate it and it's an interesting mechanic that um seems to be breaking apart the fan base a little bit yeah i just can't excuse adding 45 minutes to a game of terraforming mars i i just i ugh. I can't. I mean, I love the game. It's it's one of my favorite games. You know, we, we bought the game the same time at the convention at MSRP, and we were fine with it. So, but, and I own everything? I think, I think I'm missing one thing for it, but, all right. So let me get on to a massive amount of reviews, and just like Anthony just reviewed Terraforming Mars Turmoil, I am now going to review a large number of games that Anthony's already reviewed, and let you know what I thought about them. I'm not going to go through a full review of them, but each and every one of these games have been completely reviewed on our podcast. So if you'd like to know more information about the games, obviously, always, you feel free to welcome to kind of hit us up and ask us about it. Or please jump back to our previous episodes and hear a full review. So first up is Blood Rage Promo Box. This was a recent Kickstarter that I backed and I completely forgot about and I got in the mail and I was like, what is this? And then I was like, oh yeah, this is the blood rage thing. And I opened it up and I'm like, I kind of own all of these things already. Why did I back this again? And then I remembered that it has a digital game that at some point will be coming out. So I was like, ah, all right. And then realized that for some reason I completely missed out on the fact of the extra thick boards so basically, I got the gods, which I already own, but now they're painted gold. 
There is a new clan, but I already had the fifth player clan, so now it's a fifth player clan in yellow. And there's some revision monsters, so to speak, that you can kind of bring into the game. But eh, other than a couple of minor things, it's basically Blood Rage. I got a chance to play this. I know I had a friend who actually had the super large gods. The gods do the same thing. The faction that you get is just a generic faction, and pretty much everything is the same except upgraded pieces. That being said, upgrade pieces are, in my book, always a good thing. I don't know necessarily if you needed this. This is not an essential expansion unless you did not get the fifth player for Blood Rage. I don't think that Blood Rage needs five players. I feel like it probably plays best with four, but five plays great. So, you know, for Blood Rage promo box, I'm going to give it a buy only if you haven't picked up the previous thing. And if you have picked up the previous thing and you just want some new and glossy and different colored pieces, then yeah, it gets a solid play for me. All right, next up is Quadropolis. This is from Days of Wonder Game. Came back out in 2016. Had not get a chance to get this to the table. And this is all about city building and based upon how you build up your city, you will score additional victory points. So there's a lot of different ways that the building score and they build and they score based upon this little chart here. So you build apartment buildings in the advanced mode, lots of points. You build parks in certain ways, lots of points. City centers, lots of points, so forth and so on. It's a cute, fun little game. It plays super fast, surprisingly fast in this game. And it's something that you could probably play with younger people and families for sure. It just might take a little bit longer as they try to figure out what kind of strategy situation they're looking to play. And when you play with heavier gamers, we're going to completely meta the game and try to figure out which one's going to give us the most victory points possible. But it is still a lot of fun. So Quadropolis is from Days of Wonder. You can pick this up at a discount rate. And if you do, I, I give it a solid buy. Next up is Marvel Champions, the card game. We just recently did a, if you like the Marvel Champions card game, try out these other games. Finally got this game to the table. It's an LCG from Fantasy Flight Games. It's Marvel, <laughs> the LCG. So you pick a character, you fight a big baddie, and they're scheming, which is a secondary kind of win condition for the bad guy, and they're also attacking you. So you don't want to get knocked out, and you don't want them to be able to get the points up for their schemes. There's a number of different schemes. There's a number of different baddies in the game, and there's a lot of expansions out there. So a lot of different ways to kind of, you know, change up your team a little bit. It does not have a real thematic kind of drive to it. You're mostly just hitting and attacking or taking away scheme points, and that's pretty much it. The artwork is okay. It's nothing really super evocative. A lot of the cards are like, here's an attack card, but it's a Hulk hitting something instead of you hitting something. So, again, I understand they didn't want to have you know unique artwork for literally every card in the game. Makes a lot of sense, but in the end, you're just playing a lot of cards that may not exactly be you. So I was missing Sentinels of the Multiverse a little bit, but Marvel Champions, the card game, gets a play for me. Finally is Three Kingdoms Redux. This is a three-player game from Capstone Games about the three kingdoms in China that were kind of were consolidating during the Han Dynasty. This is a more complex, heavy game. It's at least a 4.0 on the weight scale. So definitely not your entry-level gateway game. Basically, you're going to start with your own particular faction here. 
it's going to be unique in a couple of minor ways. You're going to get generals. Generals are going to have certain characteristics about them that are going to make them better at certain things, not at others. They're all going to have a special ability that is going to play into the game. You will go into the middle area of the board and be able to pick up resources and troops and then arm those troops. And then on the side parts of the game, you'll be able to go to battle. The game has a number of different quick end conditions in order to kind of like wrap the game up or play the game out a little bit. It's your standard victory point game. And throughout the game, as you place your generals out, you're trying to have the most support in that area in order to win that area or win that battle based upon the different troops that you have into play. So there is an overall kind of bidding situation with the worker placement element there. There are some development cards which add a little variety to the game. This is a really solid, fun game. I was surprised the fact that it seems a little dry. Some of the artwork and some of the pieces are really poor quality considering the day and age of board gaming that we live in. But nonetheless, with the variety, and I mean ridiculous variety, of generals that can come into game and how they can kind of chain together, this game is definitely a buy. So Three Kingdoms Redux gets a buy from me. A bit of a whirlwind. I come into this, I see the spreadsheet, you've got four oh. games that are in my top 100, and I'm like, okay, which of these I'm going to have to defend? And it turns out you like all of them. And so I'm like, <laughs> cool, it's good. Three Kingdoms Redux is one of my top worker placement games, period. It's just a very clever bidding mechanic for worker placement. Quadropolis, it's simple. It's Days of Wonder. It's quick and light. But God, I love this game for some reason. <laughs> I really, really like it a lot. Uh, Blood Rage is one of my all-time favorite games, even though the promo box is just, you know, shiny nonsense <laughs> to tide people over while we wait for the <laughs> digital version. And Marvel Champions, I think this is the only one where we diverge, where I think I like it a little bit more. But the fact that you gave it a play after six months of making fun of it, I'm happy. I'm good. That's great. <laughs> so... It's still a ridiculous game, and I again, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this also at the same time, Arkham Hard the LCG, it's probably still a better game. I agree. I just <laughs> I just don't like the theme, so it's hard. Look, I I get it, you know. And when I was playing, you know, the Marvel LCG, I was like, oh, this is this is fine. You know, I like putting out you know allies out on the board. I like the fact that you're. You can go to your secret identity and you could put other people, different types of people out there. It has a really simple mechanic where you're basically paying for cards with cards. So all very, very good. A little much, a little heavy on the text. But as I was playing it, I really wanted to play Arkham Horror, the LCG, and I'm not a Cthulhu guy. So I wanted there to be another condition or a rationale why I was doing what I was doing or if the scenario changed. Because when I was playing Marvel, you know, we got to a point where we just lost. It wasn't it wasn't a dramatic conclusion. It wasn't an interesting twist. It was just, oh, he gets three uh, scheme points and we lose. Yeah, All right. it's it's missing the story element. I agree with that. And I feel like that's something that's going to come in the expansions. But it's not there yet. I'll admit that. Yeah, so it's, like I said, it's it's a light play for me. I would certainly play it again. But I don't have any expectations for it. Because, again, it just... It has that very abrupt ending that doesn't really make you feel like you accomplished much of anything, but eh, it's fine. All right, Anthony, so that's everything that's hitting our table. Let's get on to the feature review. For our feature review this week, we are talking about our favorite game, The Great Zimbabwe. And we are so grateful to have 
our Patreon backer, Michael, join us for the episode. Hi, Michael. Hey, Chris. It's good to have you on the episode, and we are really interested in Great Zimbabwe, and especially, why it's your favorite game. Yeah, so I actually think that it has a lot of interesting mechanics. I think that's been noted by a lot of other people also, but it also has a lot of interesting depth um, that isn't immediately seen on first play. Um, I think you really can't grasp the the full strategy of the game, even on like your second play. I think as far as the initial play goes, you're often just kind of fumbling through it a little bit, more so than other games. Like most splatter games out there, there's always one rule that just kind of catches people off guard. They can't wrap their brain around it. Um, but And I think that's just kind of the case for most splatters. But generally you get an idea of like how this game's supposed to flow. And I think Great Zimbabwe um, does one or two things to you when you first play it. Is one, it really messes with your sense of spatial reasoning. Um, or it it seems like you get the flow really well, but then you realize how much timing matters and how the economy flows back and forth in the game. Yeah, yeah. This is a, uh, one of those games that the first time I played it, I didn't understand what the heck I was doing. And actually, the first time I played it was with Michael because... Michael, we kind of skipped over this, but Michael's in Pittsburgh. So we play games together all the time. And also a very generous Patreon backer who's joining us for this special feature. Um, but we have played this, I don't know, you and I at least, in groups like 10 times or so in the last year. Yeah, probably more than that. And it's and you say the past year, but it's probably like five or six months. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, and you guys, we've talked about a lot of splatter games in the podcast before like i've played a lot of food chain this one we've talked about a little bit indonesia and antiquity chris i know you played those right Mm -hmm. absolutely i played great zimbabwe too and it follows that kind of splatter tradition of being a very unassuming kind of like table presence but if you look closer not just the mechanics but obviously the story that it's putting together and as you mentioned michael the spatial element too uh, and and especially at the time, you're like, all right, I, I I got the spatial stuff down. All right, so I build like this, I put over here, and then it all comes down to timing, which is very unique for uh, a splatter game. Yeah, I mean, mechanically, you look at the rules. I mean, it's kind of all summarized on that one sheet of paper, right? Like, do this, then do one of these things, and that that's your turn. And then you look at trying to calculate distance between things and determine what can go where and which different resources you have access to and what order you want to go in and which God you're going to select to be able to do that. And I think that's where all the depth comes in, right? Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting because there are some fundamentals to the game that are just, you have these core rules and the core rules fall out in four phases. Like you have the, um, generosity of kings phase where you're basically bidding for turn, turn order. And that bid mechanism is actually pretty interesting because you're, like, say I bid one, so I'm going to put one cow. Cow is currency in this game. You only have one real resource that's player-owned. So I bid one cow. The next person's got to bid two, um, but they're going to put two cows down on these two different plaques, and you're going to keep rotating through these different plaques that represent the players. So what you're doing is is divvying out cows, this your, your fundamental currency in the game, um, to the other players. So it's kind of a catch-up mechanism, but it's also a way to decide who really needs to go first this round. 
And how much can you stand giving money to other players who are going to have it going into the next phase, which is where you're going to spend all of your money. The most interesting thing is during that phase, when you're spending your money, you have only like four actions you can take. You can either choose a god or a specialist. And what's great about these gods or specialists is each one breaks a one particular rule in the game. But you can only ever have one god. But the gods can be very powerful, but everybody has a god, potentially, that breaks one of these rules. Um, so I guess I should kind of go over one, some of the core conceits of the game. So like the core conceit of the game is about victory points. You want to get victory points. What's different than most other victory point-driven games is that you have a victory point requirement. So everything that you take in the game, a god, a specialist, a craftsman, that's going to increase your victory point requirement up to 40. So I could be at 20 victory point requirement. Anthony could have a 25. And even though Anthony has 24 victory points, I could win with just 20. Um, and that's what makes the game interesting is you're taking on a higher victory point requirement with the hopes that these special abilities that you're getting are going to be able to ramp up your, your engine enough to make that before any other player. The main way that you get victory points is by building these craftsmen out on the board and by upgrading your monuments. And you basically can put out monuments, but that's the only action you can take for the turn. And your monuments don't give you that many victory points right when you put them out. You have to upgrade them by using these craftsmen. And the way the craftsmen work is you put them out on the board, taking up space on this already limited map. And whenever you put them out there, anyone can use them and the limited resources that are on the board, like trees, elephants, um, wood, and diamond, to upgrade their monuments. But when they do, they expend that resource for that round. But whenever they upgrade their monument, they're getting more victory points and they're increasing their economy. They're, they're always, you're always going to get the amount of cows of your highest monument. And you're saying like your monument's only one, two, three. That's not a whole lot of cows. It's because the cow, also the cows that you're paying out to craftsmen, your own or other people's are going on the card and you're going to get those back at the end of the round. So there's this interesting like push and pull. Like, do I want to pay Anthony? Do I want to pay his wood carver um, this round, even though he won't have access to it at this time? But whenever we go back into the bidding phase, when we're at the bid for turn order, he's going to have two of my cows that I may have just gotten from my monument or whatever. Um, so that's what's particularly nice about the game is that each phase flows pretty seamlessly into the other. And it's very quick because unless somebody gets some really bad analysis paralysis, you're not going to be sitting there a long time. And you're really going to be uh, moving through these, like I don't think we've ever had a situation where we looked up and we're like, whose turn is it? It's always like, yeah. oh, we know where we're at, we're moving through this. And everything's so tightly bound that you see how your decisions immediately affect the next round. Um, and then once you get past the initial mechanics of the game, like figuring out what's within three spaces of the other, so on and so forth, because that's usually one of the things that trips people up, is everything has to be within three spaces of the other, unless it's non non-resources, then it can be within hub distance which is this whole complicated thing yeah <laughs> it's not real bad but it definitely takes two or three plays to be able to look at the board and go oh i see what this is because then it becomes a game about how can i help myself while hurting somebody else on the board 
And that's really what the game is about, is this this spatial game where you're playing, trying to put out monuments and block people off and put craftsmen out, while at the same time trying to keep other people from getting ahead of you while helping yourself. And that sounds like every game out there, but this game is uh, it's very on the surface. It's like, when I do this, you can immediately see that that's going to cause problems for the next player in line, and they're not going to be able to do the thing that they did. And it also helps me out in this way, but hopefully it's going to help me out enough because I just took a victory point requirement hit of four. So now I have to get four more points than the next guy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're constantly calculating the impact of every action you take. Because you could, like, oh, I'm going to pick up the specialist because it helps me do this thing. But is it really helpful? Because yeah. now I'm a little bit further away from winning and maybe I gave this other person some money. Like, one of the things I like to do in this game is build up and build up and build up and know that eventually I'm going to give a ton of cows to somebody else because you have to if they have all the craftsmen but do it late enough in the game where it doesn't help them at all right (laughs) like Like I ended a game with 86 cows because you collect revenue before the end of the game is checked right and uh, I had 86 cows but Anthony won like he had like I had gotten so much money from everybody but I couldn't do anything with it they had all paid me because I was the craftsman guy I was basically the you know, great Zimbabwean mob. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had like almost every craftsman under my control and I had like a VR of 38, but I couldn't, I couldn't do anything because they were hoarding so much of the economy. And unlike most splatter titles, this game actually plays at a pretty quick pace. Like I think our first game was two hours. Yeah. I mean, the f- and that actually, was with teach with three players. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the first time I played, it was just us and it was, oh, right. we had like an hour left. You're like, let me just show you this game real quick. And if we don't finish, it's fine. And we totally finished. Yep. It was just an hour. Um, and that's, that is definitely one of my favorite parts of this because you think splatter and anybody out there who knows splatter thinks, okay, three, four, maybe five hours of play. Yeah. And it's a lot of grounds. There's a lot of complex things going on. This is not one of them. And, you know, they have some other stuff, like Bus is not a long game. That was recently reprinted. But this is, like, in my head, the one splatter I would go to if I wanted to play this type of game, and I had less than two hours to do it. Right. Yeah, I think it it definitely lends itself to where that first play might be a little bit longer. And it kind of has this weird, like, bell-shaped curve where it's like your first game is going to take long, and then you get shorter and shorter and shorter until you kind of get to this point where you're looking at the board and you're like, wow, there's just so many possibilities. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, you start to slow down a little bit more to where you kind of average out. I think we've gotten through like a four-player game in like an hour and a half before. We were kind of speed playing, but not so much. I mean, we were definitely taking our turns a little quicker. But I think that's definitely like a big pro about this game is that it it's a splatter title that has kind of this unique vision like most spotter titles it has a lot of depth to it the initial complexity isn't it's not like a mind clash game like it's not going to be like playing um anachrony or Mm -hmm. cerebria where you just have systems on systems on systems this has four distinct phases it has one phase you're doing most of your action it has an option and all the depth comes from the emergence it's all emergent complexity where all of these different systems, all these two different systems are like interacting and it's all about player interaction. And that's nice. You don't have a giant player board with all of these different pieces on it. You're having to look over at someone like, what do you got? What do I got? Mm -hmm. Like you have your craftsmen, your specialists, your gods and your cows. And there really isn't anything else. Everything else is on the board in front of everybody. Um, I think that 
I think that lends itself to a very interactive game. And it also lends itself to being able to just like glance at the board and go, oh, I know exactly where I need to be. And you're not just like holed up in your own little player board, uh, which can happen sometimes with a lot of these other kind of big, complex games. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I really like the, I feel like we can go back to this a little bit, but and you mentioned the asymmetrical god powers, which is not a unique mechanic. A lot of games have asymmetrical powers, but the cool thing about these is that you don't start the game with them. You choose when you take it. And as we play the game more, the thing I found is that frequently one or two people will wait until the very end of the game to choose what god they want. Yeah. Because you don't add the VR from it. Yep. And you wait until you need that power the most. And then nobody knows what you're going to do, but you build towards it because you know what you're going to do. And then you drop it on people. And that's such a cool, unique mechanism that you just don't see in other games. Yeah. I, I think one of the most interesting wins that I had was I took one specialist, no craftsman, and I just use this one that if you go on the the forums on BGG, there's people that are always going, is this God overpowered? Is this specialist yeah. overpowered? <laughs> there's one specialist in particular called the herd, which basically is, oh, a, yeah. is a, it's basically a, something to drive. It's a herd. So you're taking two cows, you put them on the herd card and then you get three back. It's the magic of reproduction. So, and you can do this up, up to six cows. So you'll be getting nine cows back every turn. And in a game where you might be only getting one or two cows, three cows from your monuments, that's a huge thing if you can get up there. So I only had that card and we, it was a five player game and I got to the end and I took a Nasi, which a Nasi is this God, which it's it's the easygoing god. It's the drummer god, and it gives you negative two VR, so it drops your VR requirement by two. So I took that god last turn, upgraded my monument, and won the game. But it kind of since I hadn't taken a god and everybody else had, my VR requirement was pretty low. So I just knocked it a little bit lower and could jump the two points I needed to win. And I think it's interesting plays like that where you you really have to plan for it and you have to make really strategic decisions about when do I want to place a monument or when do I want to upgrade because you can't do both during your turn. You can either place a monument or you can upgrade a monument and that's it. Um, You can't do both on the same turn. So you really have to choose your pacing and timing um, very deliberately and choose your, how much do you want to bid? How many cows do you want to put out in that initial bid to determine your player order because somebody could take the resources out from under you that you need to upgrade your monument. Yeah. Yeah, that player order bit in particular. Again, this is, I say this about every splatter game. Other people do this, but this is just, it's unique and clever in its own special way. And just nobody replicates it in that. Yeah. Like the way that the, the plaques are out in the order of VR, right? Mm-hmm. So if you jump ahead and you're like, you have the highest victory point requirement, you're first in the plaque order. Yeah. So you're going to get a cow every turn, whether you just bid one and you're automatically in the bid or you pass and someone else is going to bid there, right? Right. Um, it's just a cool mechanism that you don't see very often. And at the end of the day, it's just an auction, but it's just a cool, clever way to implement an auction. Yeah. And it's a good way to like keep everybody in the game. And I think that's one thing that I, a lot of people has remarked upon is because you, you're so used to a splatter game where you make a wrong decision early on in the game and it just haunts you and you're pretty much just out of it. Like we've all yeah. hope most of us have probably been in a food chain magnet game where <laughs> we make one wrong decision. Somebody's got $300. We're sitting at 25 and we still have a $500 of the bank to go. And we're just like no end in sight to how you could possibly make that money up. 
what's nice about the Great Zimbabwe is that because you have that first turn auction, if somebody really wants to go first and they have a bunch of cows, they're going to have to pay for it. Nobody's going to let them get away with that. And if they do, then that's the other player's fault. It really is a, a good example of a catch-up mechanism. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty it's pretty solid. It's one of those games, like the first time we played it, I liked it. You know, mm-hmm. I like. I don't think there's a splatter game I dislike. There's some that I maybe don't want to play as often, but there's none that I dislike. Um, and I just didn't quite understand it. I think it took two or three plays, and then it finally clicked. And once it clicked, it just shot up my list. Like, we did our top 100 last month, and it was okay. top 10 for me. Like, oh, well, okay. And I hadn't played it before, like, a year ago. So it was like, wow, this is really, really good. Um, and I think a lot of the same reasons as you. I don't know... I think part of it is just the accessibility of it and the fact that every time I play it, I can kind of go with a different strategy. You know, yeah. just run down. I'm doing this god. I'm going to go pure crafting. This god, I'm going to ignore crafting. I'm going to put out 35 monuments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this god, I'm just going to make 600 cows and see what happens, you know? Yeah. The, yeah, the interesting thing about it is even after that second or third play where it kind of clicks for you, that it's still, like, you don't completely internalize some of the rules that are there. Like, I know one that kind of surprise somebody because we all knew the rule like it has to be like when every place a craftsman it has to be within th- within three spaces of a resource that's exclusive to that craftsman what we didn't quite realize was that or at least it hadn't quite dawned on us is the rule is written to where other craftsmen can take resources from that craftsman as long as they also have an exclusive resource so you can have craftsmen really overlap with resources and just eat from each other from two different players. And that kind of like emergent property, I guess, where you're just seeing rules and how this game plays and different levels of strategy kind of emerge four or five plays in. Um, and it keeps happening. Like we're like, oh, this god's this god seems really useless. And then somebody takes it and they play with it. And it's like, oh, this is actually really cool. Um, there's ways to manipulate and drive that. Um, yeah, and I think I was kind of digging around, like seeing what other people said about like the great Zimbabwe and how, what other people think about it. I noticed like Jamie Stegmeier has put out two videos about like his favorite mechanic or whatever. He's put out one, he's put out two about the great Zimbabwe because the first one he put out, he hadn't <laughs> played it yet. And he was like, Oh, this just seems really cool. And then he put out one like three years later where he's like, I actually played it. And I'm not going to talk about this really interesting and like innovative mechanic. I'm going to talk about this other innovative mechanic. I'm going to talk about the craftsman thing where like you oh, pay sure the craftsman yeah. card and you don't have that money yet. So it's interesting that like even other game designers have kind of looked at this, like looked at Great Zimbabwe and at Splatter games in general and been like, oh, there's a lot of one. And that's really like, I know the, the there's the, the splatter cost, right? The splatter tax. Yeah. But you're really paying for the massive amount of time that these guys play test these games. And they just... There, if you ever get, I think there's like an interview out there with them. Uh, I don't know who did it, but they interviewed the Splatter guys like five or six years ago and talked to them about their design process and how they will add in a bunch of mechanisms and then they'll strip it back and they just play test the crap out of it. And so you and I have played Roads and Boats, and one of them was talking about like, yeah, like we just wake up in college and like we would be like, oh, we'll just play a game of Roads and Boats, then go study, and they'd play like six games of Roads and Boats. Oh God, <laughs> Can you, I mean, I can't imagine that. Like that's, just that's... waking up in the morning, like eight a.m. Hey, and it was like his girlfriend. He was like, oh, let's play like eight games of Roads and Boats. Oh God. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that kind of tells you like these are games that they enjoy, and then 
it's also games that just get play tested to hell and back. And I think uh, that really shows up because you buy that kind of singular vision that is this kind of like splatter title. And uh, I think it shows throughout their games. And not to say they have like like great like they're just like knocking it out of the park every time. Like I think everybody has like Duck Dealer came out, and I think that kind of I haven't played it, so I'm not gonna I can't really speak about it. But I know that's been kind of the one that people are like yeah I don't really like that, but. Speaking of like the cost is like there, you can also play it online. I think I posted in the Slack channel. Like, does anybody want to play Grey's Zimbabwe? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, it it's free to play online, and I think copies are going for upwards of one hundred eighty dollars right now. Yeah, it's out of print again. So fun. Um, yeah, if if you guys aren't on, if you are Patreon backers and help on the Slack, we will gladly play this game with you because it's and it's quick. We will usually finish a game in a day or two, like async. And if you are not a Patreon backer. You can back at a dollar level, and then you can also join us. So it's <laughs> um, just hit us up because it's a lot of fun. We do play it pretty frequently. So yeah, Great Zimbabwe, obviously one of your favorite games, if not your favorite. Game. I know you ran through your. The... Yeah, I think Great Zimbabwe was like in the top ten. Um, that list was probably like I ran through the what what is it called the thing where like you rank you do the matchups and bounce back and forth between yeah, two yeah. games. And there were some that I think surprised you, right? But I mean, Great Zimbabwe was pretty high on mine. It, uh, it, it's definitely a good game. It's, it's, I would say it's criminally underrated because I think it's sitting at, sitting at one sixty three right now for strat and strategy games and three twenty six overall. And I know I've commented about this before, but if if Splatter games had the production value of like Wingspan. I think these games would be climbing way higher on the chart yeah. just because if they were hot, new, and looked good, it just had that chrome on it that made every that made everybody go ooh. Um, I think it would really climb up the charts um, and knock stuff down like terraforming Mars. <laughs> oh come on, come on, get out of here with that. <laughs> um, yeah, now Great Zimbabwe is a funny one too because they overprinted it. They were a little overambitious. Yeah. Nobody wanted it. They finally sold them all, and now it's 200 bucks again for those of us who want it. So I'm glad I got it when I did. Yeah. But, but yeah, man, thanks for coming on. This is it's one of my favorite games now, too. It's in my yeah. top ten. So it's fun to talk about it, but also fun to share it with listeners who maybe hear Splatter and think a certain thing and don't realize that this is out there as well. All right, so that's everything for this week. Until next week, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And this is Michael. And we'll save you all... I see that great Zimbabwe. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.